You are listening to True Crime Fiction and we are feeding your addiction to the best of the spoken and written word in all things crime. Hey everyone, this week I have an interview for you, which is great, but I'm afraid what is not so great is some of the audio quality. It was recorded over Zoom and there are a few wee bits which are just not as perfect as I'd like them to be. So I'm sorry about that, but I hope the content is going to be really good and really interesting and you're going to love listening to it anyway. Welcome listeners, my name is Mari Campbell-Jack and I'm the host of True Crime Fiction. Today in my glamorous studio, I have Ashin with me and he is the host of The Troubles podcast. Welcome Ashin. Thanks for having me on. So I have been doing interviews with crime fiction authors, but you are the first podcast host I have on and one of the the reasons I was really interested in the troubles as a podcast was mentally I'd always classified the troubles as political rather than true crime so why did you categorize it as a true crime podcast what was your thinking around that um well very very simple really I've been making pod or not making podcasts I've been listening to podcasts for about 10 years and um, lately, kind of, I steer towards the true, true crime genre over the past two or three years. And right now, true crime is an extremely popular genre. So when I finally decided to set up my own podcast, I first had to figure out what I wanted to do a podcast about. And I'd heard about the assassination of Louis Mountbatten, who was a member of the royal family, who the IRA blew up at sea. They planted a bomb mm. in his boat and they blew him up in, off the coast of uh, Sligo in Ireland. And I was shocked that I'd, I'd grown up um, and I'd never heard this story. I never knew anything about this. So I started looking up kind of the troubles. I started looking up like podcasts and there was very little to nothing. There was, there's a couple of ones, virtu- is virtually nothing on the troubles. So I said, okay, I'd like to launch a podcast. I'd like to make it about the troubles. And the most popular genre is true crime. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this a historical true crime podcast. And then I'm going to promote this directly at a true crime audience, which is what I did for the first season. So in that way, it helped kind of grow it very quickly. And now I'm getting a lot more of the organic uh, people coming to the podcast who are interested in the troubles. But I started it purely advertising towards kind of true crime, just to kind of try and build a bit of a, I guess, try and build an audience, you know. So pure marketing decision at the end of the day, then. What does well in podcasts? I said, I know true crime does well. And I know this is pretty much true crime. It's also history. And um, some people have said it's not history because it's too recent. So Ooh. it's it's got a lot of very complicated genres. But um I think true crime can be quite a powerful genre as well. There's another podcast I love called Thunder Bay, which okay. it starts off as a true crime podcast about the murders of indigenous teens in this um city in Canada. But slowly as they start investigating these murders, it's not about murder, it's about systemic racism and anti-indigenous feeling and you know a whole political system that's been built on colonialization it's quite hard to sometimes get people to look at those issues because instinctively people sometimes go oh it's difficult oh it's tough to think about so by using true crime as an avenue into it i thought that was incredibly clever actually but by the sixth episode i had to release like a primer like a background like 
why is Northern Ireland the way it is? Why does this go back to the 1600s? So I had to, like, straight away off the bat, I was even leaving the true crime thing a little bit and just going into, people are asking me, what is this? So that's why I kind of needed to put that up. I probably should have done, started with that episode. Each episode, you can jump in and jump out with no context of the previous or post episodes. And that's the design I wanted because that means it's bite-sized way of building up a whole framework into understanding the troubles. And I think it's working. I think the feedback so far has been quite good. One of my other questions, like particularly about setting it up, was very much, as I kind of alluded to, when people come across so difficult political situations, there's often kind of like a tensing up. You know, if you mention Israel-Palestine, you can almost see people wanting to take a step back. But you've kind of gone full force into an issue that people where I'm from would shy away from discussing because they'd be like, I'm worried about offending somebody or saying the wrong thing. What made you think, no, I'm not going to care about that. I'm just going to address this issue full on. I knew it would require a lot of sensitivity. And I was quite, um, I was quite intimidated when I released it. So I'm a big fan of the probably the biggest, the most popular true crime podcast in the world right now, which is called Case File. Um, and it's just, it's a great, great no-nonsense podcast where a lot of true crime podcasts, people kind of, let's get drunk and talk about crime. And mm. it, it's quite, uh, suits me. It's not quite what I enjoy either. So Case File is just very direct. He, he tells the story exactly as it is. So I decided to kind of go along that sort of vein. Um, but when I released the podcast, I released it anonymously. I didn't put my name out there at all. I was just concerned. I was... I was concerned how it would be received, and I don't know, was I ready for that? So, yeah, but within about two or three months, maybe I changed my mind. I just kind of, the reception was very good. A lot of people were just really, really happy to have this out there and to be learning about a a time in history they knew nothing about, but they were fascinated to learn more about. So I think after about five or six episodes, I think I just said, ah, feck it, I'll put my name out there and just actually make a go for it. And put a bit of confidence into what I do, not just release something because I'd never done a podcast or anything before. So there was a lot of nerves and there was, you know, you, you, you're, you doubt yourself. I think you do a really good job of being very neutral. So I listened to a lot of them kind of thinking, Oh, I wonder if I can catch something like a little phrase or a word or something that gives anything away. And yeah. you really don't. Is that a really hard skill to develop? Or, you know, was this maybe something you already had from other work? I'm a complete idiot with the way I speak. I need to be very careful. (laughs) I I I put my foot in it so many times in my life. So a lot of conversations with friends, um, a lot of talking about the form, a lot of talking about what words would be appropriate, what wouldn't be appropriate. And then I'm really, really critical. Uh, I'm really, I read over every episode many, many, many times. I don't want to put any bias into the episode. Even when I put emotional tones into an episode, which is for me, I'm trying to focus it all about the victims. Mm. But even that sometimes can be concerning, you know, because I don't want to be like, oh, you know, she was a very nice person who blew up all those people. But no, like even one of the episodes I released that I, I thought was quite good was I released one on Ian Paisley, who was a very famous unionist figure. To be honest, I was, I was quite upset with myself by the end of it because I just said I probably should have balanced out I feel like I probably said more negative things about him than positive things, even just doing the chronology of his life. But this is not something any feedback came back to me about, but it was just kind of, I'm always trying to have the seesaw right in the middle. That's kind of the the thing. If this becomes biased, or if I start imparting my opinion, then it loses all sense of what, what the purpose of it is. No one wants to listen to a biased telling of history. 
I think quite a lot of people do want a biased version of history. And one of the conversations in Britain at the moment was we're kind of like waking up to our colonial past, becoming more aware of the negative impact the British Empire had on the world, which it was something I grew up with because that was yeah. the political atmosphere in my own family. But that for a lot of people, they just saw the positive side and they seem incredibly shocked that there might have been anything wrong with the British Empire. You know, 15 million people starved to death in India. Like they're still saying it's a really great thing. So I think people yeah. do want biased tellings of history, but I, I think history, proper history needs to be really balanced. Like Irish people all are very, very, very surprised to learn that English people don't really know anything about the famine. Because the famine features all through our lives growing up in history. And you know, a lot of the language of the famine is, you know, there's an argument in Ireland that whether it was a genocide or not, whether the, the British government allowed the people of Ireland to die. So it, it'd be a very nationalist argument, but also would be not really on the fringes. I think it's something that many, many Irish people would believe. But the thing is, you, you talk to your average English person who might never even know about the famine or know that the role that their government, that their historical ancestors would have played the argument for that, I feel like, is um, the United Kingdom had so many different colonies. Like, it's impossible to know the deep history of every colony that you affected. I think just Irish people find it jarring because I am one of them. Similar for Scotland with things like the Highland Clearances. Very few people I know who are English know about the Highland Clearances, and they're very surprised to hear about it. And there is a similar discussion about if that was a genocide or not. I grew up in the Highlands and people still talk about it in a very emotional way. Part of the emotional history and landscape of people's connection to the Highlands. Like I think Ireland went from 9 million down to 2 million or something. There'd been a surge in population just before the famine as well. In Scotland, we don't really learn Northern Irish or Irish history. Not in history class anyway. I learned about Northern Ireland in English class because we did a book okay. called 12th Day of July. And that was about a group of kids in Belfast and some are Protestant and some are Catholic and they get thrown together and they end up friends and it's really lovely. And that's how we learnt about sort of the, the troubles. And other than that, it was seeing stuff on the news which didn't have in-depth analysis. Um, no, that'd be another bomb went off, I feel like the news would show, you know, and that's kind of, that's been going on for so long that if by the time you're growing up watching it, it's the, con the, the context is almost lost, you know? Absolutely. So like some of the things you're talking about, I either wasn't born or I have very vague memories. And then some things are, are a lot clearer to me. And I was kind of wondering, is age a big factor in how people respond to the podcast and what they can remember? Uh, initially, what I did again is I, I was tr trying to get exchanges on other larger podcasts where you do a promo promotional exchange where you play a little ad for each other's podcast at the start of your episode. So I started by going for Irish diaspora countries. So I started with America, Canada, Australia, the UK, and then, of course, Ireland. So I started to build up this kind of very nice audience of people who just always heard about the troubles growing up but never really knew what it was. was. And there are people kind of in their 40s, 30s or 40s. I think my biggest number of listeners now is, yeah, men between 25 and 40, I think is what my stats say. And I've been getting a lot of people in their late teens and early 20s, like a much younger group than I expected. Um, and they were kind of just, they'd get onto me and they're like, this is brilliant. I didn't know anything about this. The only logic I can kind of find for that is it, it might still be a little bit too recent. You know, mm -hmm. if parents lost their brothers and sisters, if parents lost their parents, 
it's really someone, a couple of people messaged me and they just said like, you know, I lost my aunt or I lost my grandmother and we just never asked about it growing up. Probably stayed with them a little bit. So, so now I'm getting this much younger audience listing that I really didn't expect that they'd, they'd come from. But obviously it's something that was a big part of their past that people just didn't want to talk about. People in Northern Ireland didn't want to always be associated, associated with the Troubles. You know, it's like the German Hitler situation where you don't want to always be associated with something from your past that's nearly 100 years ago. So let alone only 30 years ago, you know, a lot of people just want to get on with it and live their lives and not have this shadow constantly following them around. It's understandable because you don't heal by trauma by necessarily repeating it and traumatizing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. My, my, probably my biggest country, though, is, is uh, the, Great Britain, I think, uh, according to my, stat, my stats anyway. People were surprised at what went on because they didn't know. They just heard in the news another bomb went off and that was it. I, I was very surprised by the amount of people from Great Britain who knew nothing and were very, very eager to learn more. We don't really get a sort of detailed analysis from the UK media. Is that really frustrating for yourself? The only, the only way I think I can answer that is you construct the media that you choose to have around you. So I, I've kind of left behind. I don't watch the six o'clock news anymore. I have like a podcast I listen to maybe every second day that tells the world news. Or I, I have built the media that I like to see around me. So when I want to look up something more, I'll deep dive into it. That's really interesting. And I'm, kind of, I'm very interested in this idea that we now can, in a way, curate our own media. In one way, that seems very powerful because you can make choices. Whereas before, you know, when you just had four channels on the telly, you didn't yeah. really have a choice. But on the same side, I'm wondering how much of a privilege that is as well. Not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has internet yeah. access. Well, and if I was sorry to interrupt you there, but I was going to take that somewhere else. I was going to say that's also a slippery slope because if you look at like the likes of people who get radicalized in the States, they have curated their own media. They've curated what they think is the truth around everything they see. I don't quite know where the line is on that. You know, it's it's definitely a, it's a blend between the two. And I must say that, like, especially sources for writing episodes, the BBC have some phenomenal documentaries and have been absolutely essential for me. Many, of, if not half the episodes I've written, they have some amazing, absolutely amazing documentaries out there. I don't think we're going to solve the whole question of media, but I do know they now teach in schools a lot more sort of helping kids be media savvy my 13 year old the other day we were having a conversation and my 13 year old actually asked me if i'd checked my sources oh um, wow <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> sassy but it's great that's i know she's, yeah, yeah. she's getting sassy i mean i told her that apparently in finland they call mozzarella moomin meat so <laughs> it was not the most in-depth political discussion <laughs> More communication brings so many benefits, but it also brings a lot of issues that can really harm people as well on so many different levels. So if we could just kind of like go back to the writing that has recently been happening, we were hearing a lot that it's about Brexit. And obviously, apart from the pandemic, that's kind of been the biggest issue of the last few years in all of the British Isles. How do you think that's going to affect things in Ireland and Northern Ireland? Brexit specifically? Yeah. I just watched a BBC documentary about the, the centenary, is that you pronounce it? The 100-year anniversary of Northern Ireland was, it's this week, I think, or it's this year anyway. Uh, media outlets are using this as a time of reflection to go, well, has it been a successful 100 years or not? You could, you could, you could I guess you could argue both, but it's been probably more strife than, than progress, I guess, unfortunately. 
So the idea of Brexit, it's creating something very strange. I almost want to say there's three distinctive camps in Northern Ireland at the moment. There's unionists, there's nationalists, and there's people who just want to live a life and not be branded as a religious brand or branded. They don't care about this stuff at all. And they're being told from all over the world, well, which side are you on? Like, what do you support here? People just want to get on and move on. And yes, there are going to be radicals on both sides. I think Northern Irish people don't like to be branded with this binary black or white. I think that's that's a very frustrating thing for a lot of people. And again, I'm just a reminder, I'm from the Republic, Republic of Ireland. I'm from County Meath. So I always do feel a bit uncomfortable talking for people. Mm. So just to, just to put that out there. The nationalist majority has just recently overtaken the unionist majority. So now after years of having higher, much higher percentage of families of children, the population balance is, is starting to shift. People would say, oh, well, then brilliant. The next time there's a vote, all the nationalists will want to come back to Ireland. Not, not necessarily. I think they were, I don't know was at the board of the, the polls I was watching yesterday, but one of them was saying that if the unionists could vote to stay with the UK, like over 90% of them would remain with the UK. But if the nationalists could vote to reunite with the Republic of Ireland, it's only about half of them would choose to because there are benefits that are with being part of the United Kingdom. According to the documentary last night, and I think it probably made a good point, is that there not much is probably going to change in the next 10 years. But I think in the next 20 to 30 years, maybe in my lifetime, we might see a decision being made. And I don't necessarily know if that's going to be coming, you know, rejoining with Ireland, but I think maybe the pressure to rejoin with Europe might even be higher, depending on how economics work out over the next few years. But it's undeniable that like Northern Ireland being a part of the UK is very beneficial in a number of ways. Um, from the UK side, it's also been very expensive to maintain, <laughs> to maintain help and economy as well. There was a funny nationalist argument I, I saw that was like, was it Arlene Foster? They're trying, anyway, it was trying to say that the political spectrum right now has done more for the nationalist cause than the years of violence. It's just putting people in a very awkward position at the moment. You know, and the unionist population in Northern Ireland feel like they're being dragged into Europe and dragged into, into a united Ireland, which is something they absolutely will not accept. I really don't know. I, re I really, really don't know. I, I think it might just make more sense, maybe in 20 or 30 years. But even if it makes more sense, there's still going to be some very, very strong feelings. Probably want to act on those feelings as well. I, again, because I always like to compare everything to Scotland, you know, Brexit has had an uh, impact on the independence conversation. Because yeah, well, because Scotland got a bit of a raw deal because the referendum was to stay a part of the UK. They did. They they voted to remain because they liked being in Europe, and then the UK then Brexit happened like three years later. Was that correct? Yeah. Or am I completely wrong? Twenty fourteen referendum was: Do we remain part of the UK or do we become independent? And it was a very binary choice. David Cameron chose to take out something which we call Devo Max which would be bringing it close to a federalist system. A large part of the conversation in that vote was about would we be able to stay in Europe or not? And the feeling I always got, I was actually as part of my work watching the European Committee of the Scottish Parliament and they had uh, officials from the EU giving evidence. The feeling I always got that the EU was kind of like, it's not going to be a big deal. Like there's a few hoops to jump through. But as part of the UK, we've already got all EU law transposed into our law, which is the bit yeah. that really takes up the time in EU membership. And a lot of people decided that they wanted to stay with the UK when Brexit happened, the feeling from people was, 
we decided we wanted to stay for a UK that was in Europe. That has now fundamentally changed. That is such a big change to our law and our way of life. I, I don't know. It just, yeah, I find it so bizarre. For a lot of people displeased with that, but I, I actually think the thing that has much more impact is the conversations around going out of Brexit, the increased racism, the flag-waving, jingoistic patriotism. And a slight bit of Islamophobia, or maybe just xenophobia, but I felt like there was that definitely had some part to play as well. And then even people who have a very strong cultural connection with England are kind of looking at Westminster and going, not only does it look like we're just going to continually have Tory governments, but they are the worst kind of Tory government as well. They're not the moderate Tories. So for, for a lot of people, they don't actually recognise the UK anymore in the way that they did in 2014. And that's been in a very short space of time. Well, I wonder what, what would the, uh, the results of the election be or the referendum be if Scotland knew that uh, that they were leaving, they were being pulled out of the European Union, basically. I wonder would that have changed it? Pro- probably significantly, maybe. I don't know. I'm really not sure about that because I don't think before 2014 we had a real civic engagement in politics and political discourse in Scotland. 2014 kind of really started that happening. And then Brexit as well got a lot of people discussing politics which you know they they just didn't care it wasn't really affecting them and i think because of that a lot of people didn't really understand what europe did and what the benefits yeah. of europe was so there's people like me who i've worked my whole adult life in politics so i'm super aware but I actually set out to educate myself about that because I knew I didn't know enough. Most people are, you know, they're too busy living to do that. So I think, yeah. I think people didn't really know. I mean, it, it will be really interesting because this uh, Hollywood election is being seen as a bit of kind of like almost a mini referendum and that if we get a uh, majority for independence, then Thank they're going to see that as we need to have another referendum. And I think if there is going to be independence, it will probably be now because Nicola Sturgeon's handling of COVID has been amazing. She's come out like a proper stateswoman. And I think the respect she has is sky high. So Brilliant. people could see her as leading an independent country. Oh, that, so, that'd be, it'd be very, it'll be a very different landscape over 10 or 20 years. Then if things I mean, keep going the way they're going, I guess. So who knows? We could genuinely be living through the, the breakup of the UK as a state, which I think is really interesting. I'm not sure where it leaves Wales, but I, I think we could definitely see a breakup of the UK. But at the same time, you never know what events are going to happen, and it's always events. Yeah. I know that um, so the, the two parties right now, power in the Northern Ireland, the DUP and Sinn Féin, that Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin is, oh, they're saying, yes, we will be having a referendum in the next few, you know, in the next few years. Whereas Arlene Foster is saying, that's, that's not going to happen. We're not, we're not, we're not there. You know, Sinn Féin are trying to push for, oh, we're going to decide if Northern Ireland, you know, joins with Ireland very soon. Whereas the DUP are saying that's not even the question at the moment. It's not on, on the table at all. So it's, it's interesting how they're trying to lead together and they just have vastly different views and opinions. Very difficult to lead if you're both pulling in a different direction. Two questions left. I just wanted to ask what your plans are for the future of the podcast. Presumably at some point you're going to run out of material because you'll have covered all the troubles. Would you move on to doing 
other political things around Ireland and Northern Ireland, or, or do you think you just really want to focus on the Troubles? I, I really, yeah, I, I have a list of episodes. The list is massive. It also depends on what's available online to research the episodes, if it's feasible, because each episode is essentially like a, a five or 6,000 word essay. So it's, there's a lot of writing in it. There's a lot of research. So yeah, the, the future of the podcast, I think I could definitely get to like five or six seasons. Um, but I am kind of checking out other avenues of podcasts. So I, I've launched another podcast with my friends, a more casual kind of attempting to be entertaining, I guess, podcast. Um, and I've got a couple of ones in my head as well. I was kind of thinking of maybe one about the famine. But it just, it just all depends. Right now, I have something that I really, really love, which is the Troubles podcast. And I want to just interview more people. I want to write about more interesting things. And I want to try and engage, I guess, in my audience more. So I, I want to go up. I want to go up to Northern Ireland very soon and make a few videos as well for, for my Patreons. So short term, I want to maybe interview more people and get more, get more boots on the ground. I want to get down there and actually talk to people. That sounds really interesting. And I'd like to put my vote in now for a podcast on the famine. It just brings me on to my, my last question about the trouble is that I don't see much analysis of class within analysis of the troubles. And I was wondering, is class a factor or are there other factors that are just actually way more important? I think when it comes to class, you have to remember that Northern Ireland, when there's a plantation in Northern Ireland, the Ulster Scots who came over there, they were not on the same level as the native Irish people that were there. They were given the best land. The native Irish people were told to get off the land. And then there was a lot of rules and laws put in place so that the native Irish people could never really get to the stage where they could become landowners from their land that was taken from them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's a very, very historical view of it from 400 years ago. It, it creates a complex that, that has lasted for so long, which is traditionally the Catholics were more downtrodden and they were a lot more poor than the Protestants. And that's what led to the civil rights march in the 1960s and the, the civil rights movement that was based very heavily on the American civil rights movement. But that's where Catholics said, you know, we want to be able to get social housing. We want to be able to, we want to be able to get jobs. Like Catholic people weren't allowed to get civil servant type jobs or any sort of jobs because of the way that the, the system had been set up to give Protestants always the best advantage. If you're saying class, class has always played a part. Definitely during the Troubles, the worst of the violence was probably in the poorest of the estates, the poorest of the neighborhoods. But historically speaking, it's very important to remember that the Catholic and the Irish people, the native Irish people, were, were, they were never given a chance at the very start. They never had a chance because they were anything that they had of wealth was taken from them. And then over the years, they were never allowed to attain that back, get back to that level. Like when Northern Ireland was established 100 years ago, the six counties were chosen very specifically so that there would be a Protestant majority. And then the regions were split up in such a way that the Protestant vote would always be the majority vote. So even in a very heavily Catholic area, it was split up in such a way that even though 70% of the people there are Catholics, whenever it goes to vote in, in, you know, in, the, in the offices or in the government, the Protestant always has the majority. Yeah, I think class definitely has a part to play. I think it'd be kind of an interesting episode, actually, because I, I think I need to do more reading up on it. But I think from a historical context, class has always been there. But I guess the religion came first. It was the re religion that split. If you're a Protestant, you were going to do better. You're going to have more money. You're going to be afforded more chances. And your interests would be catered to. You're more likely to go to co college. You're more likely to get paid a better job. You're more likely to get social housing. It's all very important factors that, that caused eventually just the Catholic people said, 
No. And it's something we can see as the root of other very violent conflicts in the world as well, because in both Sri Lanka and Rwanda, the British Empire came in and decided one ethnicity was better than the other ethnicity. Like they work harder or whatever, and then gave them all the jobs. And with all the jobs came all the perks and the education for your kids and, and everything else. And in Rwanda, that kind of sowed the seeds for the genocide, which is probably one of, well, I don't think we should probably rank genocide, but it's probably one, one of the, the most shocking genocides yeah. that's Absolutely, yeah. And in Sri Lanka, they had 30 years of civil war, the seeds of which that were sown from civil service jobs given out by the British, basically. So Oof. it's a formula that we know does not work, basically. We should yeah. stop doing this because it's really terrible. <laughs> it sets in place divisions that kill that kill people at the end of the day. Yeah, it's it's trying to build a building on a very shaky foundation, I think. And it's, you know, well, and you have to look at the, the British's, the, the first intent with the plantations was to domesticate Ireland, make us good, loyal servants of the crown. And it obviously failed quite miserably. And, <laughs> and then, but by the end of, by the time that there was such a population that were very loyal and they were like, well, this is our land. We've taken this land now. We've moved over here. I, I was talking to this fascinating man last week who was, he was blind. He was blinded as a child. He got hit in the face with a, a British um, plastic bullet or a rubber bullet and he lost his eyes. He's a Richard Moore, fascinating guy. He's met the Dalai Lama and everything. He kind of said like, you can go two ways when these things happen to you. You know, you can you can be like me, and he instantly forgave the soldier, and he just wants to forgive everyone around him. Or it's incidents like this that can just radicalize you, further ramp up the violence that you you're willing to to carry out. I guess one of the, the very strong memories I have of a child of of the troubles was watching the news with my parents, and I think it might have been the Omar bombing, or it may have been another one. It was one that was just like in a wee town, you know, somewhere that no one had even heard of. But one of the, the girls, a young girl killed in it, was called Mari. And of course, because my name's quite a Scottish name, I was immediately like, oh, wow, she, she was called Mari and kind of got quite interested. And then her father came out not long after the bombing and publicly went on TV and said he forgave the bombers. And I remember my parents just being like, wow, completely stunned. It's, a, it's an amazing, noble thing to do, isn't it? To, to put aside that that level of violence, that level of anger and hate. And, it's just phenomenal. You know. And you you read of people also who, there's a, a Dutch woman, I think, called Corrie ten Boom, who was in a concentration camp, had an awful time, as everyone in the concentration camp did, and then came out and not only forgave the Nazis, but worked in rehabilitating people who had wow. been Nazis. Yeah. And sometimes the... These things which are so, so awful and actually make you despair about humanity sometimes, there can be also the most amazing glimpses of yeah. empathy and compassion that is just staggering. And there has been a lot. There has been a lot when it came to the troubles. Like, and it comes to the, the problem is when, again, a lot of Northern Irish people are very angry that this rioting has been on the news around the world because they're like, this is just youths. There's also accusations this is related to it's nothing to do with Brexit. It's just the UDA and it's their drug rig. And there's all sorts of stuff that's being said. But, you know, there's been so many amazing efforts at building peace and building bridges over the past 30, 40 years that 
wouldn't necessarily be talked about as much. Like mm. Pat McGee, uh, you may know, but he was the Brighton bomber. He was the person who nearly killed Thatcher. He planted the bomb. Pat McGee was one of the Brighton bombers. So he came very, very close to killing Thatcher. He's devoted his entire life to peace and to talking with the opposition. So him and one of the daughters of someone who he killed, he killed her father, Joe Berry, I think the name is. But the two of them travel around and they literally talk about conflict resolution. There, yeah, there, there, there are people who did these things and went to prison and they came out and they just wanted nothing to do with the violence that, that for years. There were people who doubled down, but there were a lot of people who didn't. Nobody wants this violence. Yeah, it's so phenomenal when and powerful when you hear. So just to finish up, I asked all of the guests on the podcast to recommend a book for the True Crime Fiction Bookshop, which is an affiliate of The Bookshop, which helps independent bookshop retailers. And all the proceeds go to independent bookshops and a little bit goes to the podcast. So I would love you to recommend a book that's a really good starter book around the troubles for people to read, but also feel free to just recommend a book that you just love and want to share with people as well. I've read a lot of books. <laughs> I've read a lot. I just finished one today called Children of the Troubles. It was very tough going, but it's a, it's a heavy one about the, the toll on the children in the Troubles, the amount, of ones who died, the, the amount of children who died during the conflict. The one I would always recommend at the moment is called Say Nothing by the American journalist Patrick Rodden O'Keefe. It's following the story kind of of Jean McConville and of Dolores Price. And it's, it takes two major incidents during the Troubles and uses that as the linear narrative to explain the whole Troubles in a very gentle way. I always get people asking me, is there a book that explains the Troubles? And they're really, I find it very hard to find one that's digestible because they're mm. very, very, very dense. They're very dense and full of information and full of, I, I just, I've, I found the media related to the Troubles very, very, very hard to, to access. That's why I, I believe uh, Say Nothing is probably the best one I've read so far for someone who knows nothing to open it on page one. If, if, if you are interested in learning more about the Troubles, there's an excellent YouTube series and it's just called Spotlight on the Troubles. It's a seven part series and it's a brilliant start to finish. Uh, it's about seven hours long. But again, that plus Say Nothing and you will actually have a handle of what's going on. I think. Right. That's the two things I'd probably recommend. Okay, that's great. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like I learned so much in your podcast and I've got a, a lot to go away and think about and chew over now. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here is by kitty kitty meow meow it, it just added fuel to the fire when when the blight happened that caused the population to absolutely be decimated over like a 10 20 year period absolutely that is Madness. a shocking amount and also as you're talking i realize i've got some potatoes in the oven that i need to turn off <laughs> <laughs> that's a brilliant segue this would be your sponsor now if you're sponsored by chips or something <laughs> Right. Sorry about that. That's my dinner. I'm a problem. Hang on. Let me just look this up. I really don't want to say the wrong one. Did you ever hear of the Shakers? Yeah, they, they're more bonkers because they didn't believe in procreation. So they ceased to exist quite quickly. I know. Like, what kind of... <laughs> that is just the, the strangest Daft. thing. You still get a lot of Shaker furniture. But yeah, I always found that a really weird... Um, Really weird stance. Like, that wouldn't be the hill I would die on, for certain. Um, 